Apostle Paul's uh, letter, uh, a lot of times if you read uh, through the, uh, the epistles as we continue in our series in 1 Corinthians, um, if you've read the epistles, you know a lot of times the Apostle Paul starts off his books and starts off uh, these letters by praising people. Uh, he praises the churches, he praises individuals. That's just the way you know, it usually goes. Even in, in this book, in 1 Corinthians chapter, you know, the very first chapter in verse 4, he said this. He said, I always thank my God for you. And this was not Paul you know, saying, I, uh, you know what, let me make him feel good. You know, I'll, I'll tell him that I always thank God. The, the Apostle Paul, on a regular basis, would be on his knees and would be thanking God for this church. And he said, I always thank my God for you. Because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech, with all knowledge, God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Even at the very beginning of this chapter, chapter 11, what does he say in verse 2? He says, I praise you for remembering me in everything. And for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. Praising them. And so as we come to verse 17 that Doug just read for us, it's a little bit of a shock. I think if I'm a little bit shocked, and you may be a little bit shocked, the people that he was writing to, the original audience, they were really, really shocked. Because he writes in verse 17, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. No praise. Wow. Devastating. Nothing? Paul, you, you, got, you got nothing for us at all? You know, it'd be like your spouse going away on a week-long business trip, and you had previously arranged, you know, to have painters come to paint the living room. It's going to be a big surprise. You ordered furniture. You know, you spent countless hours going back and forth to TJ Maxx and Home Goods, find the perfect pictures, accessories. Everything's perfect. They walk through the door at the end of the week, and they just stare. And five seconds seems like five hours. And all of a sudden, they say, you know, they have this expression like, you know, they were sucking on lemons on the flight home. And they have this expression, and they say, what did you do? What did you do? How disappointing that would be. But, you know, unlike a temporal redecorating that really could be changed pretty easily, the fallout from what was causing Paul's deep distress had potentially long-term, even permanent consequences. And the passage really hits home when you start to see that what they were doing, more than we care to admit, is many times reflected in the modern-day church. Well, what was happening there? What was troubling the great apostle's heart so deeply? It seems that it all centered around something that is referred to in several different spots in the New Testament as the love feast or the agape feast. Paul said that something was happening when this group got together to share a meal which was supposed to be a good thing that turned it into a bad thing. A really, really bad thing. In fact, Paul said in that same verse, for your meetings do more harm than good. They were getting together for a good purpose, and bad things were happening. It would have been better if they had never gotten together at all. 
Now, let's do a little historical work like we have to do in 1 Corinthians or in any biblical book. The love feast or any modern day uh, uh, equivalent is really, for the most part, you don't see it in the present day church. The ancient world was more social, I think, than we are today, even though we have something called social media. You know, people have 500 friends on Facebook, and yet if, if they're in a time of deep distress, you say to them, who would you go to? They say, I don't, I don't know who I'd go to in a time of deep distress. They have no one. That's pretty sad. But it was in the early days of the church a custom to gather together on a regular basis and have a meal together. It was a priority of God's people. In fact, some of you, I know you come from some backgrounds, and I've spoken to you. Uh, when you were kids, you went to church in the morning, and you didn't step foot back into your house until at night, until nighttime, right? Because what happened? You went to church in the morning, and then you had kind of something like this, maybe, and you spent all afternoon, and then there was another service, and the service in the morning was three hours, and the service at night, they gave you a break. It was like two hours or more, but it was kind of, you know, maybe a little bit similar to that. I think for us you know, the potluck supper was kind of it. You know, that's the closest I think we can get as I was looking at it. But it was a wonderful, wonderful custom, and it was a real tool to nourish Christian fellowship. Because whenever you introduce food, you know, food is kind of a social lubricant, isn't it? People sit down, and they begin to talk, and they begin to share their lives, and that's just the way it's always been. It's the way it was then. That's the way it is even now. But they, had, they brought food into this custom of getting to know one another and having fellowship to one another. Now, the culmination of the agape, or the love feast, usually ended with the celebration of what we're going to do in just a little while with the Lord's Supper. And it was based on the model from the final Passover festival that Jesus celebrated with his disciples. But the thing that was supposed to be a nourishing, encouraging, building, uh, a holy, joyous time, there in Corinth had degenerated into something that was just the opposite. It had become a travesty. The good thing a time of remembrance, hearkening back to a joyous time in the history of the Jewish people, which was supposed to result in a shared joy, instead resulted in some walking away broken and, and, and very, very disappointed. Now, you may remember that on the night that Jesus was given over for death, he was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. The Passover meal was a memorial celebration it was observed every single year by Jewish, the Jewish people in memory of the time when the Lord liberated them from slavery in Egypt. And we've all seen the movie. Moses was having you know, trouble with Pharaoh, getting him to agree to let, after 400 years, his people go. And a series of plagues, it, it had just kind of an opposite effect of what it was supposed to have. The plagues were brought in to weaken you know, him, and to let the people go, but it had just an opposite effect. It, act, it actually hardened him and hardened his resolve to keep God's people in bondage, which is really weird, but you know, it's not that weird when we think about how broken we are, how the heart is human. The human heart is desperately wicked. And you know something? Even when we are faced sometimes with something that is true or something that is logical or something in the end we may even think is right, we think is righteous, but which also represents an indictment of our own actions and prejudices, sometimes you know what we do? We double down. We push back harder than before. 
And you know what it all goes back to? It's really easy. Pride and arrogance, right? We're not going to admit we're wrong. So, we, you know, we stick to our guns. In fact, we, you know, we, 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 we double down, like I said. So God told Moses to prepare the people because one final terrible judgment was about to come upon the land. So he instructed the people to take a spotless lamb, not some decrepit or deformed, you know, lamb, but a spot, the best one you have, and apply the blood after you kill that lamb to the doorposts of their home, the top and the sides, and let the blood run, you know, to the floor. If they did, God promised that the angel of death, which was about to be unleashed on every family in Egypt, targeting the firstborn sons, that they would, that, that house would be delivered. Those people would be safe. If they did what, the, what Moses had said, when the angel came, he would pass over that house. And so the tradition. And God was showing them that the shedding of blood was necessary to escape the righteous judgment of God. Blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sin. Well, after this great event, God commanded that each year on that date, each Jewish family was to kill a lamb and to eat it in remembrance of the original setting of their deliverance and of the original lamb whose blood had saved them. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 12. This lamb was called, that they prepared, the Passover lamb. But it really wasn't. It really was not. It, it, it was only in remembrance of the original Passover lamb. They knew that. We know that. The Passover lamb was a picture. It was a symbol of the future lamb of God who would someday come and save men from their sins. Remember what John the Baptist said? He was walking with his disciples one day. He's walking along the road. And I remember, you know, years ago, I'd look at that, and uh, especially when I was a kid. And, and, and John said, remember, do you remember what he said when he saw Jesus? He said, look, what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I said, oh, they're, they're equating Jesus with a lamb. You know, he's gentle Jesus. That wasn't it at all. John the Baptist was looking at him, and he understood. This was the one who was going to make the final sacrifice. Jewish people understood this. They got that. We don't get it. They did. Well, that brings us to the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. It was as Jesus and his disciples were eating the Passover meal that Jesus explained to them that the time had come that he would be betrayed and he would be killed and that his blood would now be shed for the salvation of all men and women. He didn't want his disciples to continue to kill a lamb every year in remembrance of an Old Testament lamb that was really only a shadow or a picture to remember him, the true lamb of God who would die once for all for the sins of the entire world. After him, no more shedding of blood, no more lambs, no more goats, no more nothing. He was now instituting a new covenant or a new testament in his blood when he offered himself up for others. Remember what Jesus said when he died? Do you remember, do you remember some of his last words? He said, it is finished. It's finished. What did he mean? 
He meant that the old covenant, the old sacrificial system, was now finished. Complete payment for sins had now been made. No more blood. No more sheep. No more animals on an altar. Men could now be made holy through the sacrifice of his body, which was sacrificed, Hebrews 10 says, once and for all. And that first night, he took a piece of bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to them to eat. And he said, this is, or this represents, obviously, this, he said, this is my body. He didn't mean this is my literal body, because he was standing right there in front of him. But he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then in the same way, Paul tells us that after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And then he added this. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Folks, let me just say this. In those few statements, we find all the reasons why we do this thing, and why the Corinthian church had made that entire scene a travesty. When they got together to participate in this supper, they were to do so not only to remember history that we just talked about, but to dedicate themselves anew to some things. Well, what were the new things that he wanted them, and we should dedicate ourselves to? Well, number one, he wanted them to remember and to honor his sacrifice, Jesus. He wanted those disciples who were apt to forget to remember and to honor what was about to happen before their very eyes. You know, when someone does something wonderful for you, it's really a travesty not to remember, isn't it? It's a travesty. Well, why do veterans, those who have sacrificed in America's wars, shake their heads when we treat Memorial Day as just an excuse to go to the shore? And, 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 you know, we barely give a thought as to the reason for the day. Why, when a spouse walks out the door after years of marriage, is the one remaining, you know, left with a feeling like, this is wrong. You know, strip everything away. This is just wrong. I sacrificed greatly, especially in the early years. This ain't right. You know, it, we're so devastated with a longtime friend who we have been through thick and thin with, all of a sudden kind of bugs out. You don't hear from him anymore over what you think is a minor disagreement. Why is that such a travesty? It's because they've forgotten. They have forgotten the sacrifices, and that's just not right. The bread was symbolizing, Jesus said, this life in flesh and blood. See, God became flesh on Christmas Day. He became flesh, and it symbolized this man of flesh and blood who was God coming down, being like us, and sacrificing himself, becoming an acceptable sacrifice, living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and bearing our sins on the cross. The juice, the wine, represented his blood. Shed for the remission of sins. They got this. They had been schooled in, in the blood their entire lives. 
sometimes we forget. This time reminds us of when God gave us everything. It's a time we remember, and it's a time when we give thanks. People who sacrifice for us usually, you know, folks, someone does something amazing for you. A lot of times, they're really not looking for a brass band. You know, and, for, and for, you know, st- yeah, everybody come around, take off their hats and clap. They're really not looking for that. So sometimes all they want and all that would, you know, kind of fill their hearts is a very heartfelt thank you. Thank you for doing that. Honor the things which I sacrificed for. Honor the ones who, who may, you know, end up bearing some of the fallout of my sacrifice. And judging from their actions, folks, these Corinthians, they just didn't seem to care that much about that. But Paul was concerned. He knew they should honor the sacrifice. But they weren't. Another thing he wanted them to remember, he wanted them to remember and to repent of their sin. You know, often a good rule of life is to choose not to remember. In fact, I tell this to people all the time. You know what? Uh, It's one of those truisms in life. A lot of times when you have a really deep uh, memory and you, you know, uh, that works against you a lot of times. Not always, but a lot of times it works against you. You know, why? Because I really, and I think this is true in the Christian life, a lot of times Satan plays the tape of scenes of past indiscretion and failure. And you know what he does? He plays it over and over and over and over again. And what is his desire? To build us up, to strengthen the church. His desire and his goal is to spin us in a tight, tight circular web of regret that Paul says, ultimately, does not lead to life. It leads to death, a living death. We have said it many times here at the crossing. I'm going to say it again right now. God is more concerned with your future than he is with your past. It's true. I stand by that statement. But sometimes, sometimes we need to remember. Why? Two reasons why he wants us to remember our sins. The first is that it reminds us why Christ died. Jesus Christ did not die for nothing. He died for something. Uh, The first thing that we need to remember is that Christ died for our sins. Your sins have separated you from your God. Paul said, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. We need to remember when we come to the table that it was our sins that nailed Jesus to the cross. Each time the Corinthians ate the bread of the Lord's Supper, they were to recall his death and be reminded to act in ways consistent with Christ's immeasurable self-giving and grace on their behalf. And every time they took the cup, which is always in the Bible, always an expression that reminded one of the cup of God's wrath against sin, that it was he who received the full measure of that wrath that we so richly deserved, and that he did it so that we could have peace with God. He said, do this in remembrance of me. But remembering isn't enough. Second reason we need to remember our sins is that it reminds us of our present constant need of cleansing. Not our constant need of being saved. That issue has already been settled. 
But you know what sin does in the life of a Christian? Sin mutes the voice of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And we need to get things straightened out. If you acted foolishly with a spouse, does that mean you're not married anymore? Of course it doesn't. It just means you need to hash things out. You need to make things right. We need to put things right. We should make sure that we are not despising Christ's death by continuing to walk in sin. We should repent of whatever sin we discover in our lives and ask God to forgive us as we participate and as we come to the table. And you know what? You know what? We will find that those sins have already been paid for. And do you know who we will be met with? We'll be met with a father whose arms are wide open, stung by our sin, no doubt, but waiting for us to come and seek forgiveness. But as Paul heard what was going on in the feast there at Corinth, he saw that they were doing things in the event itself that they needed to repent of. They came to the Lord's table and they were doing things that they needed to repent of. Which brings me to the next point. He wanted them to remember to strengthen their solidarity. Now remember, one of the wonderful things about the church was that the rich and the poor, we've talked about this, the slave and the free, the Jew and the Gentile came together as one. But when they were getting together, this church, there were signs that they were reverting back to their pre-salvation days, reverting back to their old ways. The art of sharing and caring, which had been a staple of some of the first, the first teachings of the Apostle Paul. When the Apostle Paul, you know, it was opened up to him that, you know, he is a Pharisee. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. He who followed the law meticulously, he had nothing at all over a slave in the field. I don't think that was horrifying to him. You know what I think it was? I think it was liberating that God put everybody on a level playing field. And, 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 and you know, one of the first teachings that he gave and that they received about, you know, God receiving all men, all women, that was getting lost. It was kind of going by the wayside. Paul saw it. He said in verse 18, in the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you. Is a little sarcasm here. Differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. Paul, I like him. He gets, he gets a little rough sometimes. And you know what? I could really relate to that. His rebuke had to do with the cliques and the uh, factions that were developing among them. I get it. Some of these we've already referred to earlier in the series. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. They were saying, you know, different factions, theological factions within the church. This was different. This seems to have more to do with wealth and poverty. You know, the, the division here had to do with the rich and the poor in house churches more than any theological distinctives. And it seems that there was a problem with the minority of well-to-do believers, including the bigger, you know, financers, the bigger supporters, and the owners of the homes in which the believers even met in. Those who possibly had the time and the resources to maybe 
for the love feast, for the agape feast, arrive early. Bring large quantities of fine food. Where, you know, they filled up the main dining hall area with, with their own folk. And, you know, bringing out the best food, the good wine, the good food. And later on, when the poor members of the church came, came in from the fields, came in from the marketplace, where they worked a long day, maybe after a long day on a Saturday or a long day on a Sunday, they come together in the evening, and they had to settle for the adjacent smaller room. You know, off to the side. Or to go out into the courtyard. Some of them, as we know, could not even afford to bring much food. And they were being shut out from sharing with the others of feasting on the delicacies. Feasting on the good meat. And they had to be content with the, you know, the lentils and the bread. So, at the meal where the social and economic differences were supposed to be left behind... They were shamefully on display in Corinth. That which was thought to be obliterated was only aggravated during the so-called love feast. Because it was a love feast where there was precious little love reflected. I mean, there were people who brought the wine. This is almost, it's almost comical. Not quite, but it's almost comical. They brought the wine. They were getting drunk. They started, you know, communion early. You know what I'm saying? And uh, by the time they got to the communion table, they were staggering up to the communion table, drunk. Unbelievable. Others at the evening's end, you know, were going home hungry, while others were well fed because no one shared with them. And you know what? Paul is not about to let it go. He strongly rebukes them. And you know, the sad part, when you think about it, is that those excluded probably didn't say much. I don't think Paul got... The, you know, the word as what was happening in Corinth. I don't think he got it from the poor people. You think, oh, you know, the poor people were tattling on the rich people. I don't think it was that at all. Because you know, you know what I, I have found? I have found that a lot of times those who have been treated unequally, they kind of get accustomed to it. And a lot of times they don't say anything. They just say, well, this is the way things are. But it wasn't supposed to be that way. Not in the church. And Paul says, you know, once he hears this, he says, and to some extent, I believe it. Sadly, sorrowfully, I got to say, I tend to believe it. But he wouldn't stand for it. You know, there are a few things that stab at the heart of a parent more than when their kids are at each other's throats. And I'm not talking about, you know, six-year-old Johnny and nine-year-old Jill fighting over the TV remote. They could drive you crazy, but I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. It's when your mother says to you, you haven't spoken to your sister in what, 18 months? How long is this going to go on? When is this going to get, when are you going to finally sit down with your brother? I think it's past due. I think it's time. You see, we think that the problem is just with us. But it's breaking the heart of others who have sacrificed and loved us both the best way they knew how. Jesus Christ, before the cross, prayed for his disciples. John 17, I got to do a series on John 17 one time. Just John 17. It's, it's, it's God's, yeah, Jesus' high priestly prayer to the Father. And, and he prays that his disciples, that he was about to leave, you know what he prayed for them? You know what his biggest prayer was? 
His biggest prayer was not their safety, was not the, his biggest prayer was that they would be what? That they would be one. Because he knew the world was going to come in as soon as he you know, was off the scene, and even while he was on the scene, and try to split them and break them apart. So he prays for them, but he also prays for someone else. You know who he prays for in John 17? He prays, he prays for you. He prays for me. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. See, the Apostle Paul was one who believed the message whose letter we're reading today that touches our heart through God's Spirit and we have been affected Jesus was praying for us. He was praying for us. That supper should have reminded them of their oneness with each other in the body of Christ and of the fellowship which they shared as fellow members of that body. We should remember that Christ died so that we could be united together in a family. Folks, we have people here who have no Christians in their families. They're the only ones. I have friends, you know, uh, our, our, our good friend who spoke to us a couple of weeks ago from a Jewish background, Mitch Glazer. Um, my Jewish friends, uh, you know, Irving Saltzman, uh, you know, so others, w when they came to know Christ, they lost their families. I don't think we, I'm not even sure we can relate to that. I mean, s some of their families actually, you know, did a funeral for him, and they died that day that they trusted Christ. But you know what they all say to a person? They say, but I gained, I, I grieve, my heart is, is broken over that, but I gained a much bigger family. And you know what? They really have, and those of you who are here, who are the only ones in your family, you know what? This is your family. We are your brothers. We are your sisters. Folks, all I can tell you is that when you grieve, I grieve. I do. I feel your burden. And when you rejoice, I, you know, I rejoice. It's, it's just, you know, it's almost like it's happening to me. And I know there are many people around here who are, who are like that. And they understand the unity of the body of Christ because we know that we have the same Father. We know we are part of the same family. He wanted them to remember to strengthen at all costs their solidarity when they came to the table. He also wanted them to remember to prepare for something, to prepare for his return. The supper serves to quicken our anticipation of the return of Jesus Christ. Verse 26 says this, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are reminded every time we come here that in the words of that old chorus, which most of you have never heard before, this world is not my home, I'm just the passing through. And, and we are. We're just... A million years from now, I wonder sometimes, like a million years from now, we're in heaven. 
if we're even going to remember this. You know, someone comes up to you and says, hey, you went to the crossing church, right? And you go, what? You know, I, I just, I, I, I wonder. I don't know. Henry Cloud wrote a great book called Nine Things You Should... You, Nine things you simply must do. And in the book, he gives nine axioms of life uh, that he has learned, life lessons that he's learned along the way. Now, one of the nine things is a principle called play the movie. Play the movie. Every scene in a movie, he explains, is moving toward a final scene. There, there is a plot being developed in every movie you've ever seen. And the final scene is being shaped and determined by every scene that came before it. So here's a question that you ask, and we need to ask ourselves. I need to determine what kind of final scene I want. What kind of final scene am I preparing for? And then develop a plot to get there. We never think like that, do we? We often tend to look at life as a series of disconnected scenes. What we often fail to realize is that what I am doing today is, is built on what I did yesterday. What I will do tomorrow will be informed by what I do today. You are writing a scene right now in your life. You're, writing a, you're playing out a scene in your life right now that will influence the final scene. What do you want your final scene to look like? How are your decisions that you are making right now shaping that final scene? This week, as so often happens, I'm typing these words. Oh, that's a good point. I think that's a good point. You know, I'm going to and just I'm writing it. All of a sudden, I saw uh, a, a, a text message uh, from from someone who I follow on Twitter, Albert Albert Moeller. He's a seminary president, pastor. Uh, respect him deeply. Anyway, and this is what he wrote. This is, I'm, and it comes out. He said this. Which story is more likely to end with two people living happily ever after? Meeting at happy hour or meeting at church? This isn't a message or a sermon on meeting, you know, your dream boat or, 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 or your, your, future, your future husband or wife, folks. But I got to tell you, there is a plot being developed. There is a plot being played out right now. And the scenes that will lead to the final scenes are being determined and even as we speak right now, every decision that we make will go into what that final scene looks like. Is your ultimate comfort, is your ultimate, you know, you know softness now? You're storing up treasure that one day you're going to have to part with? Are you investing time or are you killing time? Are you investing your time in the right things? Listen, the, the only thing that's getting out of this place is people. That's the only thing that's getting out of this place. Are you living your life as if your days will go on forever? You know what the prayer of the psalmist was? Lord, teach me to number my days. Teach me to number my days because I know they will end. Do you spend large chunks of time in despair over your current situation as though it's going to go on forever? Do you? Jesus is coming back. And I remembered that chorus that we used to sing you know, this is old time week. I'm thinking of all the old choruses, okay? When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. And when he does, he will fulfill all his promises and all things will be made new. We should be reminded of those things when we come to the table. One more, real quick. 
One more. He wanted them to remember to examine themselves before they participated. This is a time of celebration, isn't it? But it really wasn't at Corinth. Verse 20 says this, So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. But there was, a, there was a way to avoid what was happening. Verse 28 says, Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, I got to tell you something. I got to tell you. In my formative growing up years, I wasn't taught what I'm about to tell you so much in words. But it was kind of like, you know how you just learn something and nobody sits, sits down and says, all right, now rule number six is, but you just kind of know it. Okay, when I was growing up, um, in subtle ways, the word went out that when, I, when a Christian comes to the table, I need to check my worthiness to participate in it. I need to participate only if I am worthy. It was, generally speaking, you know, what that meant was, you know, doing pretty well. Check off the boxes, okay, devotions, check. Prayer, check. Obedience to parents, mostly check. You know, refrain from laughing at all off-color jokes that the guy said in the locker room. 75% is passing, isn't it? Isn't that like a C, 75%? Okay, but if you're passing, you can go up. But in one sense, the way I used to think was right. Because the word examine, dokimadzo, really is the same word for passing a test. So what is God testing us on? Is it how perfect we are? Is it whether or not we deserve his grace? Or is he testing us on our understanding of why he did what he did and continues to do for us? Folks, if participation in this feast of remembrance depends on my worthiness, then no one over the next few minutes should come forward and receive. No one. We need to remember what was accomplished at the cross if you want to participate in it freshly here and now. That's the test. There are places, I know of places, where if a person who has been divorced, for instance, uh, wants to take communion, they don't let them take communion. People who feel their own weakness, uh, you know, they can't participate in the Lord's table. How absurd is that? Coming to the Lord's table isn't an observance of ritual. It's an acknowledgement of God's work and his continuing work in us, weak, flailing, as we sometimes are. And it seems ridiculous to me to say to people, if you are weak and in need of grace and forgiveness and strength, please don't come to the table. Please don't come to the table. The table's not intended for you. See, but it is. It's intended to provide strength. You know what? It's, it's the same. It's like saying to somebody who's dying of malnutrition. You know what? I hope you get over this. When you get over this illness you have, come and you can join us for dinner. They weren't doing that in Corinth. There seemed to be no recognition of their weakness. And that fact, that fact was so grievous to God that it actually resulted in some pretty serious consequences. Look at verse 29. 
For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ. Who's the body of Christ? Who? Those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on ourselves. That is why many among you are weak. Listen to this. Many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. He ain't talking about spiritually being weak or being sick. And falling asleep was a euphemism for death, physical, literal death. There were people in the church at Corinth who were sick. I don't know what they had. You know, gastrointestinal stuff or you know what? I, I, I have no idea. But they were sick. And some others had literally, like Ananias and Sapphira, they had, liter they had their lives taken because they had approached the supper with no thought, with no thought of their brothers and sisters. Can you imagine that? Paul's pretty straightforward. He's saying those who gathered together in this offensive fashion, as though they were gathering together, you know, with no meaning, were bringing the Lord's discipline. And some of them were experiencing illness and extreme cases taken out. But, verse 31, but if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not finally be condemned with the world. You know, even in this is God's grace. Instead, if he sees someone continually going in their own direction, continually grieving the Holy Spirit, never with the thought of turning around, never hearing the messages that he's bringing to them, always going deeper and deeper into the world, deeper, deeper into the flesh. You know what God says sometimes to those people? That's it. Come on. Come home. Time to come home. And even in that, we see God's grace. Rather than to be condemned, he brings us home. God would rather take us out in extreme cases than let the world's lie totally consume us. Folks, Paul had no praise for the Corinthians in this matter. None. What was meant as an affirming time had disintegrated into a sad time. And that should never, ever be. When we come to the table, we should be reminded of his sacrifice, so that we can be filled with joy. And you know what we say as we take the elements? You know what we say? Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're reminded of our sins. We're also reminded of the fact that, you know what? My sins have been paid for. You know what? Nothing between me and the Savior. I can come into the throne room of God, and I can sit on his lap and call him Abba, Father. Because my sins, as scarlet as they were, have been washed white as snow. When we come to this table, we're reminded that we are one. We are part of a family. We are part of a forever family and that Jesus is coming back. And on that day, we will be filled with joy forever. And we're reminded to examine ourselves. You know, and, and as we do, we find that we are sorely lacking. But he is not. He is not lacking anything. We are his weakness, but he is our strength. This time is to be a nourishing, encouraging, building, holy, joyous time. This is really a table of joy. It's a table of joy. If we make it anything else, anything less, it's just not right. 
It's just not right. And so I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask our folks to come forward, and I'm going to invite you to come together, recognizing your weakness, acknowledging his strength.